Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Okay, thank you so much for having me. Um, I wonder as you start, if you ever do this, if you ever massively overthink a purchase. Okay, do you ever do that? Um, those who know me know this, I'm talking from experience. Um, you decide you really want a new car, or you really just needed a good new haircut, or a proper, proper holiday, and then you buy one on your credit card. Um, or maybe you've done it with a relationship. You've sacrificed time or connection with, with a really good friend or someone you really love for something else that just seemed really important at the time. But actually, sometimes with those choices, we come to regret them. And we come, the cost suddenly starts to feel more high than the thing we had in the first place. I wonder if that's ever happened to you. And then I wonder if you've ever had that wonderful moment where suddenly something changes and that cost is just wiped out. Like something comes along, you just pay the credit card bill off, or someone comes into your life, and you just get time with them again in a way that you kind of missed. Last week, we talked about how much God loves us. This series in Hosea is called Relentless Love. So we looked at Hosea's life. He had this very odd life. He was told to be a prophet, to talk about who God was, but to do it through his life, to demonstrate this love of God through persistently loving this woman who cheated on him repeatedly, had children with other men, and eventually left him. Hosea's life is found in chapters 1 and 3 of the book of Hosea. And in chapter 2, the story kind of switches a bit, and it pans back, and it kind of uses that metaphor of a marriage that's gone really wrong to talk about a bigger story. Okay, the story of God and his people. So that's where we're going to land today, in chapter 2. Um, I have printed some copies. I realise it's complicated, and you might not be used to it. So I've printed some. If you're a kind of drawer-scribbler person, there are some around, if you'd like to have a look at them and draw on them. And I've got my friend Sarah is going to come and read to us. Just Because so, it's a long passage, and it's nice to have a different person's voice, isn't it? Thanks, lovely. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into parched land, and slay her with thirst." I will, not, I, will show my, I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen, intended to cover her naked body. 
So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were to pay for her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the bowls. She decked herself with rings and jewellery and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, declares the Lord. Thank you. Okay. Um, I am a big fan of Bible colouring books. Um, I have never coloured in anything from Hosea chapter 2. I wonder why. Um, There are a number of uncomfortable things in that passage, aren't there? Uncomfortable pictures and uncomfortable metaphors that probably leave us feeling distressed and confused and, and maybe even like, upset with how God is treating somebody here. And partly that's because the God that we heard about last week, that God of redem- um, relentless redemptive love who really cares about us, who's like this wonderful husband who really, really loves his wife and wants her back whatever she's done, that doesn't quite seem like the same God who would, in the next chapter, throw her out into the desert, wearing nothing, um, possibly, like to shame her, possibly even to die. That's probably what would happen to you, isn't it, in the desert without any clothes on? It doesn't feel like the same love on first reading. But I think where we find things disturbing and difficult, where it doesn't quite fit with maybe some of the other images of God we have, I think we want to be a people who recognize that discomfort and lean into it. It would be really easy, wouldn't it, to just flick chapter two and just go, okay, I'll, just, I'll get to chapter three again, i get to the good stories. Maybe I'll just move over into something wonderful that I love in the Psalms or the New Testament. Actually, I think we want to be a people who live with that discomfort a little bit, who take those questions and that wrestle to God and to each other and go, okay, what is this? Why is this here? Why have the people of God left this in their Holy Scripture? Why have they prayed with this and talked about this for so long? Um, So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to wrestle a little bit with it. And what I want to do is talk about a few assumptions that this passage makes that kind of underlie some things in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible that will help us kind of understand where it's coming from, understand the story of it, and then help us a little bit as 21st century people to respond to it. So our first assumption is that God made everything and therefore everything is his. This is the assumption that's made from Genesis 1 all the way through the Bible, that ultimately everything was made by God just for fun, because he loves it and he enjoys it. And actually that means it's a gift. We didn't deserve it. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm 40 on Tuesday. I'm not several hundred thousand million years old, so I wasn't there. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Um, And because of that, God's creation and sustaining of all things, that story runs through the whole of the Bible and is supposed to colour all of our interactions with him ever since. It actually gives us a duty almost to acknowledge and thank and worship him. Okay, quick uh, pop quiz on your female scientists. Here we go. We got them. Perfect. Anyone know who those people are? Marie Curie. Yeah, excellent. There we go. Other radiotherapy. Dr. May Jameson, yeah, absolutely, NASA astrophysicist, first black woman in space. Anyone else? Middle one. Florence Nightingale invented cleaning hospitals and the pie chart. 
of all things. There we go. Um, good job, guys. Perfect, perfect marks. We're having a few discussions in our house at the moment about how women and people of colour have been represented and especially how many of them have just been overlooked, actually, in their contributions to science, maths, political history and art and so on. And actually, my kids understand this better than I did growing up, if I'm honest, that if we aren't honest about the contribution everyone's made, if we don't thank somebody, we don't give them credit, we don't put them in the history books, then actually we're doing something wrong. We're being dishonest about um, who they were, but also about who we are, where we come from, what we owe to other people, our own history and our own story as individuals and as a culture. And actually, this assumption that the Bible makes about God isn't any different. In the Bible, God is this artist. He has the idea for the sky full of stars, um, for hummingbirds and seahorses. He is the scientist who figured out that the geology of the land and the water cycle and air pressure working together would create weather systems that then meant that 8 billion people could survive on the food that the world produces. He invented the stuff that we use every day that actually we can't make from scratch, like air and water and light, um, even like ourselves. And actually, I think probably at our point in history, we're at this, this place where we've done more as a global culture to understand the mechanics of some of those processes, haven't we? More than maybe any other time in history. We know why that stuff works and how it happens. And actually, that's wonderful and it's brilliant. And I think God loves it when we discover that stuff because he loves that stuff. But what it does is it can make us really arrogant. It's made many of us dismiss our need for a creator. Um, we don't need to acknowledge his existence. But actually, from the Bible's point of view, to say, well, just because you understand the process means you no longer need to acknowledge the person who set it in motion or who made it or who loves you. Actually, there's something wrong and dishonest and untruthful about that. And actually, that's what's happening to the woman in the story. It's not an actual person. This didn't happen to a woman. This is God talking about how it feels to have the people that you made and love ignore you, stop thanking you, stop saying that you exist, and go off after other things. It makes him really sad. He made them. He makes the sunshine. He makes the rain water their crops. He gives them wine and oil and wool, and he's still doing it. He still gives us 100% cotton and chicken wings and sunlight and whatever else it is that we love about the world. He gives us these things, and then we, like them, don't always acknowledge that he gave them to us. We'll take those things and we'll use them to worship other gods and we'll acknowledge other stuff instead of him. Verse 8. She's not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold and used it for Baal instead. Now, Baal is the word for one of the major gods that Israel was worshipping instead of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. And I think we do the same thing. If I'm honest, I know I do. Um, it may be our own comfort, our own ego, or our career, or our family, or our own ability, or our culture, or something like that is the, the driving force behind us. Or maybe uh, your trust and allegiance and worship might be given to a political party, or a deep faith in the power of science or technology or art to change the world for the better. Maybe you trust a growing economy um, or a better education system to keep providing for your needs and those of your family and friends. Now, none of those things are necessarily bad. In fact, many of them are wonderful, and I think we're called to change them for the better and be part of them. But the Bible's assumption is that they did not make you, that they don't sustain you, they don't love you, 
And they're not ultimately going to be responsible for life on earth or keep you going for the future. God is. And God wants to show you his love and to connect with you in that way. And actually, so if you live for anything other than God, ultimately, you're doing God an injustice. What you're also doing is living outside of his kind of order of things. So God wants the world to work in a way that, well, I guess you might know it from the New Testament. God knows we know that we want to love the poor more than ourselves. We want to forgive and be kind instead of be fighting and at war with each other. We want to be honest even when it hurts us. Living like that, living God's way is actually really beneficial for people, isn't it? And so he wants us to change because it's truthful and right, and he wants us to change for our own good as well. Which brings us to our second assumption, that God rebukes those who don't live in line with his created order because he wants them to change. Again, I've never colored it in. I've never seen it on a bumper sticker. If you see someone with a bumper sticker saying God rebukes you, I think they might be skewing it a little bit. Saying, so I'm not saying go buy a bumper sticker, just that's what I'm saying. Verses 1 to 4, rebuke your mother, rebuke her. She is not my wife. I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness in between her breasts. Otherwise, I'll strip her naked and make her bare as the day she was born. I'll make her a desert, turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. So God created the world that worked. He gave people life and breath but he will take some of that away if we walk away from him. Now, it's interesting. We find these passages hard when they relate to God, don't we? But actually, we do this ourselves on a regular basis. Once, uh, one of my kids left their school bag outdoors after they came home. Um, I told them to bring it in. They didn't bring it in. Um, I reminded them a few minutes later. They didn't bring it in. Um, I reminded them half an hour later when it looked like it was going to rain. They didn't bring it in. Um, And it started raining really hard. And do you know what? They have not left their bag outside since. I didn't bring it in for them. Everything just got really, really wet. Because that's a consequence for leaving your bag out in the rain, isn't it? And you can learn that when you're small and it's a reading book and a worksheet, or you can learn it when it's your laptop. You can choose when you want to learn that lesson. We do it at work, don't we? We know there are rules and guidelines and boundaries, and that might be part of our job to enforce those with our colleagues to make sure that our workplace is safe and productive. And actually, we know as a society that we have some consequences for those who keep hurting other people or who who cause hurt to other people. But actually, we know all that, and we still find it hard with God, don't we? We find it hard, especially when it's me who's left my bag out in the rain, and God says, okay then, I didn't bring it in for you, you now have to live with this. The thing is, just with, like with us, with our kids or our colleagues or with crime, God does care both about the problem that's happening and about the person causing it. And that's often where you find all loads of the tension in the Bible is from that thing where God says, actually, you do horrible things to each other and you make a mess, but also I love you very, very much. And how do I reconcile those two things? He wants the problem to stop. But he also wants the person to be loved and changed and reconciled and come back into family and society. So any punishment in the Bible that you find, any rebuke, it's designed to show you the problem and to offer a way back into relationship. And that's exactly what's happening here, actually, isn't it? You could see this as a deliberate punishment, like it has no connection to what the person has done or what the people of God have done. But actually, it does. If you um, say... 
actually, God didn't make me. I make the grass grow. I give myself all of the things that I need. Then God says, okay, you can live like that's true. You can go and live like that's true. But if you do, you might find out that it isn't, that it isn't true, actually. Um, in the same way that scuba diving, I don't know if anyone's ever done this. It's, I, I tried it thinking it'd be wonderful, and it wasn't. Um, it's actually just being in a tiny box under lots of water, which is not my favorite. Discovered not my favorite thing. Too late um, to, to stop. Um, how long can you survive underwater? What do you reckon? Three minutes or so? Some of you a bit more. Um, if you're scuba diving, can you get about 20 meters down, take off the mask, chuck the oxygen tank, and say, I'm going to breathe by myself now. I can do it. I don't need oxygen and nitrogen in carefully mixed amounts. I'll be fine. You won't be fine, will you? You actually just need to be connected to that lifeline because it's, it's truthful, but it's also looking after you, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. And actually, that is, that's the assumption that sits behind the whole sweep of the Bible, that actually God made people and he made the world and he is looking after it and sustaining it. And so if we want to say, God, you don't exist. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to do it all for myself. God says, okay, that's not going to go well. Because whether you like it or not, God is sustaining you and is looking after the world and deeply loves you. The truth is we don't make ourselves, we don't make the world work, we don't make the sun come up, we can't even change a hair on our heads, can we? But many of us here will know that God can step into our life and change it. So God does two things through the Bible. He allows people to live with this truth they've decided as a rebuke, as a, as a way of saying, look, this doesn't work, come back to me, come back to me. He also keeps revealing himself to people. He keeps calling people back to him, telling them that he loves them. So whether it's like, if you know some of your Old Testament, there's Abraham, Moses, Deborah, Ruth, David, Solomon, Esther, Isaiah, Hosea, all these people, he's saying, look, I love you, come back to me, I have a better plan for you. And that's what's written in Hosea's life, in this marriage to an unfaithful woman that he keeps going back to and redeeming and bringing back to himself. It's written in God's people's story. He keeps bringing them out of slavery and bringing them out of exile and bringing them into a, a country where they're safe. And it's actually written in the whole world because that's what God wants to do for each of us. It's what he wants to do for our culture in this moment. It's what he wants to do for every people group, every ethnicity, every nation state, for the whole of creation. We've all made a mess. We've all gone to worship other things. And God says, I love you. I will let you experience what that feels like sometimes, but I desperately, desperately want to bring you back. Now, ooh, sorry, my plan was not to do this on a laptop. I would not recommend doing it on a laptop. Now, it's written in Hosea's life, this story, but it's really important to point out that he did not, God did not ask Hosea to treat his wife like this. If you remember last week, he doesn't say, your wife has been unfaithful to you, so take all her clothes off and throw her into the desert. He doesn't do that. What he says is, keep going back to her, keep bringing her back to you, keep loving her, go and buy her out of debt when she needs you to. Chapter two is meant to make you shocked. It's meant, you make, make, meant to make you sit up and think and go, goodness me, that, that is kind of the consequence of me pushing away the God who made me. But at the same time, one and three a book ending it to remind you that that's not actually how God wants to treat you, that God wants to bring you back to himself. 
Let's read the second half of chapter two, some of it anyway. Therefore, okay, therefore what? Therefore, because she's suddenly been nice to him? Or therefore, because of what's happened? She hasn't, been, she hasn't done anything yet, has she? We haven't heard what the woman does at all at the moment, the people of God do. Because of what's happened, because she's gone away, that's the therefore that God has decided to come and help her because she's gone away from him, not because she started to be nicer to him. Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I'm going to, speak into, I'm going to lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. I'll make the valley of Accor a door of hope. Then she'll respond as in the days of her youth, as the days when she came out of Egypt, that old story where Israel were brought out of slavery. In that day, declares the Lord, you'll call me my husband. You'll no longer call me my master. I'll remove the names of the bars from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I'll make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Okay, so our last assumption is that we need to be brought back by God. The Bible always assumes that God is going to need to be the one helping us. It doesn't assume that we suddenly need to work towards him and desperately ask him and, and kind of, we do need to run to him. But the Bible assumes that God is going to do the bulk of the work, that actually he's the one who's going to come for us. And it assumes that he desperately wants to do that because he really treasures us. Hosea 1 and 3 are still true. He still loves us, we are still his treasure. And he would give anything for us, including his own life. And he does it before we ever recognize or acknowledge his input, before we do anything to earn his favor. Did you notice where the change comes? Um, verse 14 is where God says, right, I'm going to go meet her. I'm going to go get her. I'm going to go look after her. Um, when is it that the person says that the people of God start to acknowledge him? If you're looking, I think it's verse, about verse 20, much later. And actually, that's God seeing what will happen, not what actually has happened yet that's still to come. In this picture, God's already redeemed the treasure. He's already gone after his beloved. He's already paid the price and gone and bought his debt-ridden, wayward, unfaithful wife out of her slavery. God doesn't want to be a harsh master. Some of us growing up with a, with a vague sense of religion in the background of our lives, without, without I, I wasn't a Christian growing up, had this sense that God is probably just like a harsh kind of master who wants you to do everything he says. Um, that's kind of one of the points this passage is making. Baal in Hebrew, like we said, it's a name for one of the gods that the Israelites had gone off to worship. But it also means master. It means husband as well, actually, but it's husband with a really heavy connotation of a master. Um, the word ish, by contrast, when God says, I'm not your master, I want you to call me husband. It doesn't have any connotation of that at all. So God is really clear about making a distinction. He's not asking us to swap one master for another. He's not asking us to swap one kind of guilt-ridden, difficult way of life for another or to take up religion because we feel like I have to pick up this horrible kind of thing and carry it around with me. God wants to be their friend and their lover and their husband in a much kinder sense. He wants to look after them. And so this is where we can start to connect this story into our own stories. Which husband would you like? I realize that's an awkward question for some of the guys here. 
Which would you like to look after you? Where would you like to put your trust? There is nobody who made us like God did. And there is no one who loves you like God does. God doesn't really get anything out of our worship of him, except the glory he takes in the joy of us being close. That's all he gets. We can't get, he, he made everything. We can't give him anything. He's not after you to be your master or to, to kind of extract something from you. He's after you because he wants to love you completely, because he knows that's also the best way for your life to work out to you. And I don't know about you, but I forget this really quickly. I'll run off in my imagination into other lives I think could be better for me. I find myself living for the next day off or the next holiday rather than thanking God for the difficult day that I actually have to live out and then seeking him in it and seeing his goodness in it. I find myself wanting to have more interesting experiences or a better home or more time with friends or to see someone else's relationship or someone else's stuff or someone else's thing and go, oh, I really want that. I wish I'd be happy with that. Um, and I get stuck sometimes in this cycle of desire, like wanting something, and then discouragement because I don't have it. What I find helps with me and what God keeps bringing me back to is to take a moment to stop at that point and fix my gaze on the God who loves me, who actually gave me all that I have and knows everything I need and want. Because somewhere I want to be my own master and I'm really quick in those moments to then give other things a bit of mastery over me when none of them care about me at all and they don't give me what I need. God is offering us something different. God is offering us true freedom and a relationship with him. And this is what you get when you get to Hosea chapter 3. Go and show your love to your wife again. Though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loved the Israelites. Love her like the Lord loves all of us. Even though we turn to other gods, even though we go and love other things. We weren't meant to live in debt and discouragement. We weren't meant to be desperately wanting to be happy and significant and not finding it. We were meant to be free. We were meant to be connected to this God who loves us and made us for his own joy. Christianity, this belief in God's creatorship, in people's sin, in people running off from him, and then his redemption of us through Jesus, that's not meant to make us feel ashamed forever. It's meant to make us feel free and loved we are God's treasure. You are God's treasure. You are not blameless, but you have been redeemed. It's all paid and it's all done. God has been moving towards you before the time you were even born, and he's still doing it now. All we're asked to do is just to say yes to what God is offering us. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.